0: Hello, and welcome to The Consumer VC. I'm your host, Mike Gelb, and on this show we talk about the role of venture capital and innovation in both consumer technology and consumer products. If you enjoy this show, please tell a friend or colleague about it and help spread the word. If you want to also search for other episodes or learn about some of the other resources that are available to you, head over to theconsumervc.com. My guests today are Wendy Sue, who's a partner at AliCorp, and Susanna Shipton, who is the head of platform and an investor at Alicorp. Alicorp was founded by Kevin Ryan and both founds and invests in transformative companies in New York and beyond, partnering with determined early stage entrepreneurs who know the future is just the beginning. Some of the companies they founded are Zola, Business Insider, and Gilt. This was a fascinating conversation about innovation and going from a single idea to actual business and all the steps in between. I absolutely love this one. Without further ado, here's Wendy and Susanna. Wendy and Susanna. Thank you so much for joining me. How are you both?
1: We're doing very well. We're so excited to be here. Thanks for having
0: us. Oh, thanks so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. This is going to be a lot of fun. I'd love to start by talking about both of your backgrounds. What was both of your initial attraction separately to innovation and startups?
1: Yeah, so I grew up here in the West Coast. I normally actually live in New York and Alley Corp is predominantly in New York. The DNA for tech has always been in my blood. My father, my mother, they both work in tech. Both my brothers work in tech. I started my career actually at PayPal and found my way then to work in consulting and then spent a couple of years in nonprofit. And so for me, actually, having grown up in Silicon Valley, I was a little bit of the black sheep where I had started off actually in tech, but found my way moving and gravitating towards different industries. But the reason why that's so important is because in what we do at Ally Corp, so much of our work is around identifying interesting pain points across different industries and across different company types, whether it's nonprofit or for-profit. And so my breadth and experience there really, I feel so appreciative of it because it it's allowed me to adopt very, a beginner mindset to everything that I do. And I feel like everyone on our team has very much that beginner's mindset. And I think that it's enabled everyone, including myself, to look at new companies, but also new pain points from this lens of just sheer excitement rather than one that is biased. Uh, perhaps. That's who I am. And I've been here at Alley Corp now the past almost four years and I've been a partner in the fund the last two.
2: Yeah. And so I went to Princeton undergrad and actually did very little in the way of tech there. I was deep in medieval history and medieval studies, actually thought I'd be a historian. And then I lived in Laos for about 18 months on a teaching fellowship afterward. And it was there that I really started learning more about technology and actually really paying attention to emerging markets. That's what got me initially really excited about it and the promise. And then I came back to New York and joined at the time series B, art marketplace called Artsy. And I joined initially because I just really loved art and I thought I would end up on the art side. It was a big passion for me, but I got sort of corrupted, if you will, and really ended up on the business side, working for the C-suite for a few years there uh, on Corp Strategy. But the big unlock for me was seeing how technology really enabled something that I loved art and... Just watching the marketplace grow and watching galleries make sales and artists uh, get a livelihood in the way they could not before really opened my eyes to what technology could do. So I was really hooked from that point and moved to Alley Corp to sort of work with more companies, more founders. And that's what brought me here.
0: I love that. I love both of those just brief, you know, about both of your careers. And I love how Wendy, you knew tech from the very beginning with your parents being in tech, but you went this way of going outside of tech and looking at different industries. And Susanna, you not thinking that you'd want to get into tech, didn't really know much about it, if that's fair to say. But then you went through kind of an arts lens that eventually got you into it through artsy. I'd love to just explore, like, since you both came as well from maybe different industries outside technology, has that influenced you as investors at all in terms of and making you maybe better investors because you maybe come from like a bit of an outside lens?
1: Yeah. So it's interesting for me to to look at both my PayPal experience, but then also my time at the KIPP charter schools, right? PayPal back then was in 2010, 2008, was already a huge company acquired by a large entity. We had all the amenities that startups have. Or then you contrast that to a company like KIPP also is one of the nation's largest charter management organizations. We have, you know, hundreds of schools across the nation focused on low income. And both entities, while Behemoths in their own industries function very differently. At KIPP, because you're by, you're inherently a nonprofit, you have to operate in a very capital lean way. So when startups and founders say that you have to be scrappy, there's a different level of scrappiness that exists in the nonprofit world. And so for me, I'm very grateful for my time in nonprofit because it opened my eyes to the world of what. One, launching companies in social good or the social impact mission means, I think we're seeing a lot of now social impact investors as well as a lot of incumbent funds are huge invest with a lens towards social good. But then two, it really reorients around the importance of scrappiness. And what does it mean to be a startup now, tech startup, even if you're enterprise SaaS startup, what does it mean to have a million raised from angel funders or other early stage investors? And how do you think about utilizing that 1 million in the most efficient way? Simplicity is the game that I've learned uh, from nonprofit. And simplicity is what needs to happen in startups. You have to create a product that solves for that one pain point, that delivers that one value prop that everyone else wants. In nonprofits, you have to function that way. And in startups, I've learned that you need to as well. I'll add on to that too, that when we have
2: customer conversations, really trying to understand that journey and that pain point, we often have to take our technologist hat off. You know, we find ourselves using a lot of jargon, platform aggregated discovery, and that clouds our ability, yeah, to really just get to the point and figure out what is the pain point, what's going on in this person's life that we could solve. And in our heads, you know, we're thinking about, is this going to be a marketplace? Is it going to be infrastructure? What's it going to look like? But on the front end, we really have to, to take that hat off and just have a straight up conversation without our tech hat on. So I do find that I... We are catching ourselves all the time with this, but it's really um, vitally important to sort of default back to, I'm just a person trying to understand a problem and find a solution here.
0: No, that's both really helpful. I mean, I remember reading an article about one of the methods in terms of explaining things or really thinking about whether you truly understand something and how in this article, it says that jargon actually can cover up and that you actually understand something and you almost have to turn the jargon. Okay, let's explain this to you know a five-year-old or let's explain this to someone there very simply and if you can do that then you actually understand what the problem is in this case or what you're actually trying to do if you're a startup in this example so that's that's really helpful
1: i love that you mentioned that we actually catch our salt. I caught our our whole team. We asked ourselves two weeks ago, we were actually IDing on a new concept in the food space. And I remember asking our team, okay, we say it's a marketplace, but we also say that it's enterprise creator tooling. What exactly does the word tooling actually even mean here? Or what is, what is exactly the word marketplace mean here? Let's, let's try to actually describe this concept without having to use the word tooling or to use the word video streaming or use the word marketplace. And if then we can still really clearly identify what this is, what this means, then we know. And the same goes for founders that we're pitching to. Can they describe their product in a way that feels so simple? Yeah, it was a great push. It took us a few minutes to do it, but we did. (laughs) It's a good reminder.
0: Yeah. It reminds me too, just a little bit, like I had on Eric Paley before, and he also wrote an article about this, but he said that, you know, VCs, they love platforms, you know, about investing in platforms, but before platforms, you have to have a product. And so, you know, it sounds kind of nice and great as an entrepreneur, maybe to say, oh yeah, I'm building a platform or this and that, but almost like simplify it and say, okay, but what's the actual product itself before you can actually develop into a platform. So yeah, I love it, I love it. So tell us a bit about Alicorp, because it's a little bit of a different type of fun that we've had on the show. And I'm really excited to dig in and learn more.
1: So Corp itself, we've been around since 2007, and we were started and founded by Kevin Ryan, who was the CEO of DoubleClick. DoubleClick was probably one of the first really tech companies here in New York back in the early 2000s. What Kevin built there was just incredible. You know, Google AdWords, as we see to this day, is still very much powered by DoubleClick. What Corp then became in 2007 and what it is today is we are an evergreen fund. We are in essence a $200 million fund. We invest in early stage startups, pre-seed, seed, seed, usually first check-in, industry agnostic. So in that way, we're not very dissimilar from many of the other investors who have been on this show. Now, the area where we spend a significant chunk of time and what makes us special is our incubation work. And that's probably where each person on our team spends at least half their time. That is identifying pain points from scratch, thinking through what concepts could be, that Validating assumptions or devalidating assumptions and every year or so then go launch one or two or several companies, which then we at a, as AliCorp Corp go out and find the founders or we co-build with founders and operators in our ecosystem and fund those companies. So a few companies that have been that have been born this pathway called the incubation side, they include things like Business Insider on the media end. They include MongoDB on the databasing end that went public three years ago on NASDAQ. They include Zola on the wedding registry side. They include Nomad Health on the healthcare side. Those are a few of the big ones. Guilt Group as well on the e-commerce side. And every year or so, we launch a couple. What I think the reason why I love my job so much and what we do at Alley Corp is because we are founders of our companies together, with the founders that are the CEO and the full-time C-suite, it makes it so that we also empathize with founders that pitch to us. You know, a lot of investors say, oh, we're founder first. The truth is it's hard to really be founder first when you don't understand what it feels like to have to let go of another founder or to have to manage to, to come up with a pitch deck from scratch and go through so many different iterations of it. Everything that our founders do, those that we invest in, a lot of those activities we have to do ourselves as we are incubating a new concept. And I'm really appreciative of that sort of flywheel effect between incubation as well as investing.
2: I'll add on there. You know, we did a team exercise. I think it was a couple of weeks ago about what problems would we ideally really love to solve if we each had 10 years to live and money to build new things. You know, what would those things be for each of us? And we looked at those categories and said, you know, those lists, those ideals, and those things that we'd want to build that each of us hold so dear shouldn't be so far away from what we're doing at Alicorp and we were able to tie that in many ways back to the work we were doing and then also say gee if this is misaligned you know how can we realign it with what we're doing at Alicorp so i think outside of you know just the words incubation and investing i think we truly build towards problems that we see as vitally important or you know even just fun So that's what I love about it.
1: And that's a question too. You know, what would you do if you had 10 years to live or infinite money? That's a great question for anyone who's thinking about starting a company of their own. Because ideally that's how you would spend the next 10 years of your life is building something that you love, building for a pain point that you love. Agnostic of is it venture backable or not? All
0: right. I love that. I mean, also even more broadly, just if you only had 10 years to live or, you know, what would you like to do with your life for those 10 years as well? So I love that. And I do agree with you, Wendy, that, you know, I think saying as a fund, you're founder focused or founder friendly, it seems like when you have an incubation studio, you're right there trying to solve the problem and trying to understand or recognize the insight that led you to the problem, rather than when you're analyzing companies or evaluating companies, the entrepreneur actually brings that insight to you, if that makes sense. So I really like that piece piece as well. So I'd love to hear more about maybe some of like the strategies or just a bit more about the incubation studio and just how you think about innovation and how you also think about, you know, what maybe idea has legs and maybe moves along to the next phase or even just how you think about phases.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Sure. So innovation is a funny word. It's really broad and often kind of misleading, I think. It indicates something grandiose, somewhat abstract. For us, many of our pain points that actually turn into big businesses start as small and call it unsexy ideas. You know, a database that's too expensive, a wedding registry that's clunky and difficult to navigate, uh, an anecdote about healthcare staffing at a hospital. At face value, I don't know that any of those would say, uh, would seem like they're prime for innovation. So, innovating for us really means listening to customers, putting that pain point first and separating what we think the problem is in an industry from what people actually say it is. Uh, and that's actually I think that, that's really hard to do and we still we still struggle with it but that's really our our North star. And we do that in industries where we believe there are fundamental opportunities. And I think if we do that, the likelihood is that we can build a big and meaningful business there. So that's how we sort of grapple with the word innovation. What this means in practice as an incubation studio, it's really what Wendy outlined above. Um, You know, we come up with these ideas in house with our internal team and entrepreneurs in residence. And we also have the opportunity to think outside the box, to think creatively about opportunities, what we think would be fun, what would serve the world, not what just is going to get us uh, that VC multiple. Although ideally, our, our businesses also do make money at some point. <laughs> uh, that's nice. <laughs> um, so we're really more focused on our businesses serving important customer meet, uh, customer needs versus thinking off the bat about what those, what those multiples look like. We think if the demand is strong, those will come. And in terms of the studio model, it means that there's us on the core team. And then we have a, a quite a robust network of operators that we work with routinely to bounce off ideas, to pull them into our incubations. Um, we also have an engineering hub up in Montreal. So we, we really kind of group
0: build a lot of what we do. That's great. That's super helpful. And so how do you think, are you able to incubate ideas or or maybe you're in the ideation stage, able to, what's maybe the process in terms of the market research side of things and maybe evaluating how big a pain point is and if this idea actually could become a business?
1: Mm, That's a a great question. It's the moneymaker question. So in terms of, you know, how do we think about ideas that could be businesses? Where do we start? Right. So first and foremost, good ideas are everywhere. Uh, And it's about actually just listening to the pain points. And so each, every single week, actually, us internally, we all jot down pain points that we've heard, either in our own life or that we've heard others say, or in rabbit hole deep dives that we do. For example, right now, I'm actually quite passionate around alternative reproduction. And so I spend a lot of my time thinking around the future of egg freezing and surrogacy a very taboo topic, I would say, surrogacy is very taboo. But my journey there has been chatting with couples or single parents who have gone through an experience related to surrogacy. And in a very listening point of view, a very ethnographic point of view, listening to and understanding, what are some of the pain points that you've experienced? And that is the mindset that every founder has to adopt. You need to go start and end your day asking yourself, what were some of the big annoyances or the areas where I spent too much money on? spent too much time on, or the process was annoyingly inefficient. If you ask those three questions, you'd be surprised by how many pain points actually come to mind. And so what I just described there actually is the bottoms up approach. There's two ways in which we think about pain point identification. There is the bottoms up approach, which is us connecting and chatting with people who are experiencing the pain. And then there's the top down approach, which is, okay, where is there already an incumbent that, you know what, is not really relevant anymore, given trends that have fundamentally adapted in the world, of which then we believe we could deliver a more modern day version of the incumbent. That top-down approach is a very private equity approach. That's how private equity financiers think about businesses. And when we think about that top-down approach, made with a bottoms-up approach. That's when we can truly identify and see, are there pain points that truly have a addressable market where the incumbent is really no longer relevant, actually, where we could create a new company that could compete against the incumbent, where the incumbent is also failing to serve the customer base in one way or another, and where we believe that there are fundamental shifts now that have occurred where stakeholders, different stakeholders uh, are looking for a new solution, for a better solution that's cheaper, better, and or faster. That at a high level is what yields the thousands of pain points that we at Alley Corp go through every year of which some of those pain points actually become then a deeper dive research area where we chat with a few dozen, if not hundreds of different stakeholders who've experienced the pain that then bubbles down into the, you know, a few companies every year that we actually say, you know what, this is an interesting business model for how we could solve that pain point. That is a high level top down bottoms up, all of them rooted around where is there an outdated process of which a modern day solution could provide a significant value prop to whoever the stakeholder or the key customer is.
2: Yeah. I'll add on as well that we really believe that the best ideas can often come from outsiders. So those who are able to look at an industry in a new way and pick up insights or pain points that others who are more deeply ingrained may not see with the same level of clarity And this is a great analogy that that Wendy Ells makes, but it's the same reason that children often make their way through escape room challenges faster than adults do. Uh, It's because their sense of wonder and the sheer newness allows them to really see what others don't. And so it depends company by company whether we're the people with that outside perspective, or maybe it's a founder that we're working with. But hopefully with everything we build, there's a kind of yin and yang and push and pull so that someone is the outsider, really bringing that unusual or devil's advocate view into how something is built.
1: And if I had to break it down into four simple ingredients for every pain point or for every idea, it boils down to one, what is the annoying pain point? Two, what is the incumbent process? What is that customer journey that exists right now that is yielding all these annoying pain points? Three, who is the ignored customer or who are your beachhead customers? Like the ones that are so desperate for a new solution. And then four, what are the fundamental shifts that have occurred, the trends? It could be the rise of mobile. It could be people, the rise of open source. It could be the rise of the economy. These, these shifts could be really anything, but you have to believe that these shifts are going to sustain for the next at least five to 10 years. And if you believe that, then where do these shifts make the incumbent or whatever the incumbent process is no longer relevant? Annoying pain point, old incumbent or incumbent process, ignored customer segment, fundamental shifts. Those are the four ingredients that we think about for everything that we either invest in or also that we incubate.
0: First of all, I love those responses. I love this answer. I feel like I've, I've learned so much from both of you and we've only been talking for like 15 minutes. But how do you think at the incubation stage, especially how do you think about market sizing and TAM? I've had investors on the show that really care a lot about the market size. I've had other investors that say that market size is actually where VCs a lot of the time get wrong because typically the biggest opportunities are in growing markets and typically the real opportunities are the ones where the market is actually quite small, but I've very healthy. And of course, at the incubation, you're at the very beginning almost right, of the actual market size. So I'd love to just hear maybe what are some of your strategies to see, okay, this is Maybe a small market now, but I think it's one that if this actually does happen, if we bet on this market, then this company could do quite well or could be positioned to do quite well.
1: Yeah. So one mindset that is very important as a founder or in our case on the incubation side is one that is it's hope, right? It's expansive thinking. The truth is, is that the pain point that we're solving for now, we have to believe that it can grow into a much larger industry right? So I think about Zola, for example, Zola, the beginning was really, and it still is a registry company. It was known as a registry company, but Zola now though, it's a weddings company. We do so much more at Zola than is registry. We do invitations. We have now Zola home. We have Zola marketplaces uh, for finding vendors. We are much more than what was even initially thought and dreamt of, which was back in 2013, a registry business, right? And so when I think about the market, I can understand the importance of having a large market, And I can also understand how market also could prohibit you from entering into a space, right? And I think that actually the more important question I think about is defensibility. Are you creating a product that is going to be defensible against incumbents. Because the truth is, if you are a company, a start, a little tiny little seed, and in your first or second year, you grow significantly, competitors will come into your game. More startups will emerge in your space. So I actually care less about how large the market is. I care more about, are we going to be defensible and how do we create the moats of defensibility? And what is, are we capturing on a on an insight, a customer secret that no one else knows? And how do we make sure that we are the ones that are holders of the secret? And on our end, on the Alicorp end, I have to always remind ourselves that you have to think about what the company could be a year or two or five years ahead. There is the net now of what needs to be built. And then there is the three-year vision, the five-year vision, and the 10-year vision. The founder always has to know that answer. It's okay if it adapts. That's that's why there's a difference between a vision statement and a mission statement. A mission statement is what the company is net now and probably will be the next couple of years. A vision statement is what this company will be, you know, 100 years from now, 10 years from now. That ultimately, so long as the founder has a compelling vision and a compelling mission, I am in the point of view that the market becomes a little bit less relevant, especially when you're just starting a company. Perhaps when you're in the growth stage as an investor, market size truly does matter. But in the beginning, you just don't know. You know, at least at Alley Corp, we, we don't even really create financial models because for us, they're entirely relevant. You'll, you can read articles of Kevin Ryan. He'll say, you know, contrary to popular belief, but I do not write, and I do not create financial models at all, uh, in the stage of what we do. And in fact, when we look at financial models from pre-seed investments that we make, I often don't even really look at it because what that business could be, could be really anything. It could pivot MongoDB, went through a huge pivot in the first year, you just don't know.
2: I think Wendy summed it
1: up really well. And we always say that
2: actually at the beginning, if you have a good idea, then probably others have it too. So then it comes down to really execution, building out that moat and really building the best team. And so if we see those things in place and that defensibility, like Wendy said, we are in a position to get really, really excited outside of, you know, conceivably what the market could be.
0: That makes sense. So it's almost a combination of defensibility as well as a founder of the founding team. What's your unfair advantage that puts you actually in a position to, if this does go right and this trend actually, or developing market actually become something, right? Are you in a position to truly capitalize on that opportunity? Because of course, as you said, Wendy, lots of competitors that will enter the market if everything goes right.
1: And actually just to add to market, right? One of the easiest ways to defense against market is who are the large incumbents in this space? And where is that incumbent ignoring a certain customer segment? And do you believe that customer segment will be huge? So in the case of even for Uber, right? Uber initially was focused around, you know, high-end, call it the taxi industry, the black car industry. If you actually look at those individual companies they were very large. These companies actually produce a lot in revenue. And so, to me, it's actually not hard to imagine, actually, that you could create an entirely reimagine black car industry, right? Or in the case of Zola, you have the knot and not went public back in you know 2001. And if you look at Macy's or Bloomingdale's registry actually account for a large portion of the revenue for these big companies. It's not hard to believe that being a standalone registry company actually could be huge because you already had a company that paved the way, right? And so that's a really easy way I would say for founders to think about when you're thinking about something new, really know who your incumbent is and understand their business model. Understand how big they are. Understand how much revenue they're making. Uh, that will usually give you a sense for
0: what you think the market could be. That's awesome. That's awesome. That's super helpful. I really appreciate those examples. So walk us through a little bit of the process. Once you have a compelling idea, what happens next?
2: So we do have a system. We call it the sort of level one through four system or level zero, really. And I think the level zero and one is one of our favorite meetings per week, because as Wendy alluded to, it's the time when everyone on the team just gets to bring sort of deliberately crazy ideas. Maybe our friend was complaining that they didn't have a printer at home. And so they couldn't print their return labels. Or maybe we saw a lot of golf carts when we were in California and we were wondering you know, where they came from. Or maybe a celebrity just launched a really great lip gloss brand and we thought that was a cool example. It could be anything really under the sun that we put into our level zero database. This is a cool conversation I had, a pain point that someone brought up. And we'll chat those through as a team and really kind of tease out if it's more of a trend, what are the second order effects? if it's a pain point, what are ways we could expand on this together? And so we'll collectively... Um, you know, upvote a few of those ideas to become, you know, call it level one ideas for the following week. And a level one is really the crux of the idea development. It's a basic write-up that outlines the pain points, the assumptions that have to be true in order for this idea to work, and the beginnings of what we think the relevant business model could look like. From there, if we start to get conviction around that level one, one pager, levels two to four are really just ways of building on that level one. So the most important part of all of this is that we empathize with our users. If we have an insight, we need to engage in the exercise of figuring out who all the relevant stakeholders are that are involved in that pain point, and we need to talk to them. So then we go out there and we talk to enough people until we see no new insights. And that's really Wendy's rule of thumb. You know, if we're talking to sort of a 360 group of people, stakeholders around a pain point... And we get to a point where we're not hearing any new information. We know we have a pretty good idea of what's going on, and so then we'll bake that into a level three, which is more of a concept deck. You know, we have not only uncovered the pain, but we're starting from our conversations to have a good idea of what a solution concept could and should be. And so from that point, we really start pretending the product is real. We think about what we would go to do to go sell it. We pitch the product to people without much overlay and. Really watch the, the potential customers that we're talking to go through it and a great rule of thumb here is you know if people get super excited about this really ugly deck that you're showing them with a concept the most uglified version of what this product could be you know you're onto something right in those customer interviews and so that is really the goal of the end of every customer conversation that we're doing around level three it should be people saying wow I really want to be your beta customer, or you have to let me know if you start doing this, then we think, okay, hmm, we're really onto something. And then level four is really, you know, we're doing this, we're excited about it, we're going to put capital behind it. And that's when we go out to really finalize the deck and build the founding team.
0: So once a idea, I guess, has nurtured all the way to a level four, what's that process in terms of finding like the founding team?
1: Yeah. So one thing I'll add to what Susanna mentioned, and I had to give two tealer takeaways. One of them is assume your product's real. What would you do? The truth is you don't have to code much. Uh, you would sell, you would sell the product right away. You'd show the user a mockup or a demo. Those are all things that don't have to be coded out. So that's my one takeaway is, you know, what would you do assuming the product is already exists in existence, right? And then two, simplify, There's no reason why anything needs to look pretty because what that ends up doing is it confuses the user around a pretty deck, right? Or another way I like to think about it is this way. If my niece written an essay and I knew that she put in tens of hours into it, I am less likely to want to give her bad feedback versus if she gave me a draft of her essay very, very early on, you know, it looked like it was still rough draft. I am more likely to give her actually raw feedback. And that's the thing that founders always have to be cognizant of is it's easy for us to ask our friends, Hey friend, I got this new idea. I'm going to show you the demo. Can you go look at it? What you want to get out of them is raw feedback. And so it's always better to actually have it be a bit more work in progress, whatever you end up showing them. So now to your question around, make it ugly, simplify, make it ugly, but good enough where you feel like people, you can get raw feedback and you just assume it's real. Because if you assumed it's real, you would run marketing ads, test conversion. You would be trying to build a wait list and build a pilot list. These things can happen without having to code and write anything or build a tech base. Yeah. That's
2: also why we cold email a lot, right? We we go to people who are not in our network because people in our network might be too nice to us. Whereas if we talk to someone we don't know, they're more likely to say, mm, no, this is a bad idea or this element, you're totally wrong. And that's really what we crave. So we, we you know, DM a lot of people on Instagram. We go through Facebook groups. We go through Reddit. We read comments. We really try to get to you know, people outside of our own way of thinking so that they can give us just that, that raw feedback and they won't just
0: be nice. That's awesome. That's awesome. I love that. I just love the idea of just making the deck very, very basic, nothing fancy. And that really great analogy that you shared, Wendy, with your niece and just almost like human psychology of how people would actually approach feedback. So that's really, really great, really helpful.
1: So for us as a firm in Alley Corp, we are very first time founder focused. And so I would say in many other cases, people are get really excited about investing in that sort of second time successful CEO. And, you know, Kevin Ryan is an incredible, incredible figurehead here in New York. He was the CEO of DoubleClick. He's, you know, through Ali Corp, started MongoDB and all these other different companies. But, you know, he really was only CEO for these companies for a short period of time after DoubleClick. And the reason why is because if you were to ask him, he would say, as the second time CEO, having already done it the first time, I probably would have been a 20% worse CEO. So I'm not as on the ball as much anymore. I'm not, that paranoia just isn't as, as an, isn't always there. And so when we think about what we do at Alley Corp, one, we're big believers in first-time founders, experienced operators, but first-time founders. We're very big believers in giving people a chance to rise to the occasion. So oftentimes when we launch our companies, we think about what is the company and what is the product that has to be built? Is it a hardware company? Is it a software company? Is it the kind of company that's more tech enabled versus tech first? It Helps us to figure out organizationally, who do we need at the home? Do we need a a product leader? Do we need a product designer? Do we need actually more of a a CTO at the helm? There's a lot of work that gets put into what does the organizational structure need to look like at the founding helm. Oftentimes, the great thing about Alley Corp is that because of the companies we founded, Business Insider, MongoDB, Guilt Group, Zola, Nomad, etc., many of these companies that we've been part of, they've already, are what we call, they're part of the Corp constellation. These operators have gone on to launch several other companies, or they find a way of recommending people to us, back to us. And so a lot of actually how we go about finding our founders is through our network. And it's through talking to operators that we know, it's talking to founders that we've invested in. And we are, at Corp. we are not precious about anything that we work on. In fact, we share, we love sharing our work with other firms. Uh, that's part of the process of getting validation. And through that, oftentimes people will say, well, Wendy, you know, love this idea. And you got to think of this person too. This person would be great for what you're trying to launch. So that level is how we find people through our network and by sharing our work with everyone. And in terms of how we think about who is the right fit, a lot of it actually is through spending time with each other, brainstorming and ideas together. You know, you can't just bring on a CEO here and give them a homework assignment, like if they were applying for a job at a growth stage company where there's a database of information and they create a deck that comes out of it. You know, the simple question that I ask people who are working with us is now, now knowing what you do now, knowing what you know about the idea, what would you go do? What would your first year look like? That's it. That's a simple, vague question that I ask them because that is the job that they would be asked to do right with us as a co-founder is figure out what needs to be done in the first year. Who needs to be hired? Who do they want to hire? What the roadmap and go to market should and could look like I'll add there that when we're building out, not
2: just the founder, but the whole founding team, we really think about references as our most powerful tool. And we think of them as the most, the, really just the most important part of any interview. We'll do you know six or seven references, direct and back channel for anyone we bring on. And they tell you what an interview never could. So you know, I think many people think of references as a simple confirmation of what's listed on the resume. But we believe that if they're used intentionally, they can be really an extreme extremely powerful tool not only for understanding a candidate's basic qualifications but also for proactively understanding how their superpowers could potentially fit into your team and it's it's really a head start in understanding hey how can I supercharge this person what do I need to be aware of what tools can I give them off the bat so they thrive how does this person take feedback and we find that when we're armed with all that information you know the best case scenario is where we end up and this is what usually happens we're super excited but we say hey you know we have a perspective on how to, to help you thrive here. And so that's the point we really get to through references as, as an incredibly integral part of the process for us as well.
0: No, that's great. That's really helpful. I'm just curious when it comes to motivation of CEOs that you've hired and joined the founding team, do you ever find that maybe because it wasn't the CEOs or maybe it was a COO or, you know, someone who wanted to launch the company themselves and become a founder, but it wasn't actually their initial idea, if they actually don't have maybe the same motivation as if the idea was actually theirs?
1: So for us, our founders, they are the founders. They are the founders of the company. It's almost, even when we go about... Call it hiring in air quotes a founder. It doesn't feel as if we're hiring someone. Rather, it's just a series of brainstorming exercises, and we're brainstorming with really smart operators. And in many ways, it's not so much that we're hiring; it's that we are just brainstorming people, and they're able to push our thinking in ways that we couldn't have possibly imagined before because they have deep functional expertise. And so, you know, for us at Allycore, we have if we look at you know our business insider Henry Blodgett, he's still there, and it's 10 almost 10, 11 years later, and he's still continues to run this incredible competence business business, right, even though we are actually no longer tied to BI. Right, uh, That company was acquired by Axel Springer. And when we think about Zola, everyone that is there are people, Shannon Nobu and Felix, they are people that were part of the Gilt mafia that was also part of Valley Corp. And they are still there to this day and they're incredible. And when we look at you know, Nomad Health, our, our founders and our CEO are, are still there. And so and I think the reason why is because it's not that they were inheriting idea. It's just that we were seeding an idea. And oftentimes they seed ideas into us too. And that's why oftentimes it ends up being sometimes a co-build where we're merely brand partners to them or they are brand partners to us. It's less of a who hired who, it's more of a co-build process together.
0: I love that, that's great, that's great. And yeah, I'm kind of picturing it now, that's really cool. I'd love to know as well, you know, when it comes to conviction, I guess backing up a little bit, when it comes to conviction and maybe the whole team has conviction in an idea, how do you think about, you know, groupthink and whether if you need like the whole team or if one person feels 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 very strongly of an idea that this could be a real business, but maybe the others don't. Just maybe the balancing act between that.
1: And that's something that we're always actively having to work on. It's not too dissimilar, though, from when when partners are vouching for a startup. That they want the fund to invest in. You have a partner meeting, the founder comes in, they pitch the whole partnership team, and there's usually a vote process. So for us at Alley Court, every concept that we have, we present it to the whole team. Kevin, me, Brenton, our healthcare partner, Susanna, Sherman, our associate, Blake, our associate, Jorge, our associate, Kenyon, our head of talent, Flo. Who is our Canadian partner and leads up our AlleyCorp Dev Shop? Everyone's in this room and everyone's voice equally matters. And it's important that we give room when we have a concept for call it the green comments and then the red comments, the red comments being time for us to really question ask ourselves. What makes us nervous though? About this idea. You know, we have a company that we launched in the fitness space that we're so excited about. But one core takeaway that came out of that conversation, you can call it the partner meeting, but for this particular concept for core, is this particular area is ripe with competition. No breakout leaders yet, but ripe with tons of startups trying to solve what we're trying to do. And a lot of it is in that point in time, it wasn't that competition was going to block us from launching the company. But it was giving room in that Zoom meeting that we had to highlight that competition is something that we that is on our minds. And that, that now creating a defensibility and, and a defensible moat is even more so important. So there are times when perhaps I have less conviction around an idea. And there are times when probably other partners have less conviction. And what that means, though, is that it's a great way to flag the the weaknesses of the concept. And it pushes us even harder around how do we want to evolve this concept even more so, so that those weaknesses are actually, you know, somehow become strengths. Yeah. I think when we become more
2: attuned to those weaknesses in our internal conversations, we then have the ability to go ask proactively about them in our customer conversations. If if someone on the team has brought up a really great point, then we can get feedback on that in our customer conversations and either say, oh yeah, okay, this is a real issue or oftentimes the person we're talking to will come up with a thought or idea that helps us push our thinking on that particular point. So the customer feedback
1: side does tie in again here really strongly as well. Yeah. Like this actually happened last week. You know, we've been digging in for the last month around a concept related to sort of the reimagination of Food Network and the rise of international recipe development by creatives, by recipe makers, by people like my dad who make really great dumplings and really ought to have a platform to share how he makes them. And in that world, you know, one of the, call it the red comments uh, that was noted last week was, you know, how are we going to monetize this? Are people actually going to pay for this? Great question, especially given so much free content. And so we flagged that. And the first thing that Susanna did was go out there and run a survey across, you know, 50 to 60 people responded We send out to much more than that. Within a day, we had 50 to 60 responses and we were able to easily pull in, you know, that people would pay for this and they would pay, you know, 50 bucks a year for whatever this potential idea is right? So it's important that these red comments are noted. It enables us to figure out what are ways in which we can address them. And if a survey came back saying that actually no one wants to pay for this, then that truly would have been the signal for, you know what, this is probably a dead idea.
0: No, that's great. I really appreciate that example. I know we've talked a lot about the process at Corp, and uh, which I think is so unique and really fascinating, but I'd love it if you could share maybe a couple examples of companies that started off, you know, businesses that you incubated that go from ideation stage all the way up to becoming you know a proper business so to speak
1: yeah you know zola is a company that we are so happy the team there is incredible i feel very grateful for shan because she's the reason why i'm even here at like or shan the ceo of zola and, you know, if we think back to the origin stories behind Zola, and what and she shared this publicly, of course, a lot of those pain points were around the fact that back then in 2013, called 2012, registry selections, suggestions weren't relevant. Online registries uh, were difficult to use, uh, they did a poor job helping couples navigate based on their preferences or needs or lifestyle. That there was overall ugly and an ununiform user experience across retailers. So Bloomingdale Registry just looks so different than a and uh, Bell Registry, looks so different than a Macy's, Macy's Registry. And Moreover, the one couple is having to create multiple registries because everything is standalone to that one brand, that one Macy's, that one with Bloomingdale. So can you can only imagine that as a couple, you're having to create five to 10 maybe registries. It takes up a lot of time. And back then also too, that there was limited items available even at the retailer. A few shifts. Those are the pain points. A few shifts that had occurred during that time were one, the rise of mobile. And couples wanting a more mobile-first experience on desktop. Another shift was that couples are, they want more experiences. They don't really want stuff as much. They want to be gifted an experience. That couples also were moving in together later in life. And so I think one beauty behind Zola is a flexibility around when a couple chooses to have a product in their nursery mailed to them. And, you know, those were a couple of the fundamental shifts that were at play here Around that birdzola. And, you know, when we think about what Shan and Nobu, what they've done, it's been incredible to see them create not only a registry experience that's reimagining all these different pain points, but also a company that's really built a strong tech foundation that is the drop ship tech stack. Right. Everyone now talks about dropship, but back then in 2012, 13, drop dropship didn't really exist. It was this thing uh, that People were using or building their, their tech around, but it wasn't as commonplace as it is now. And so Zola has been really incredible around using technology as a core driver for why their product works so well. Zola now, we are registry, we are invitations, we are homes, we are, we are the weddings company. Those are you know a bit of the origin stories behind behind Zola. And the team there is, you know, we at Alicor feel so lucky because that team there that Shan has created with Nobu, these are people that knew each other all from the Gilt's family. They all work together at Gilt. So there's a lot of shared cultural values that has been carried over to the Gilt, to the Zola team. I think that Zola probably is one of the few companies here in New York that has probably, if not one of the lowest, the lowest executive churn rate. And it's because of what Shannon Nobu has created at that company in terms of the culture and in terms of a beautiful product experience and in terms of you know, providing a defensible value prop To couples.
2: I'll quickly run through. So, Core is a more recent example from this year. It's an infrastructure platform for fitness professionals to launch and grow their own online businesses. So, incredibly relevant during COVID. And this was actually the brainchild of our teammate, Cam Porter, who was formerly a pro soccer player and also an engineer. So he's the the CEO of this business now, and this idea really bubbled up during a team brainstorm and a doc we were working on early earlier this year around trends we saw related to COVID. And when gyms shuttered and the industry went digital, you know we all saw uh, fitness professionals quickly pivoting to online training. And on the flip side fitness seekers really looking to follow their favorite instructors to social and video platforms. Um, And what was exciting for us is we really saw a new willingness there to engage and spend on new digital workout um, formats. So that's what Core ultimately addresses and, and really looking to build new tools for that audience. So the real pain point there is that independent instructors, you know, outside of SoulCycle or outside of Equinox really lack the digital tools to build their own businesses. And this pain point had existed for a long time, but became super clear during COVID when many people were forced out, laid off, or or had to move online. So the ignored customer is definitely independent fitness instructors, but also larger fitness businesses as well that just didn't have a good online experience. And the incumbents are the massive fitness entities that you think of, Equinox, SoulCycle. You know, instructors were for a long time beholden to them, but many are realizing the power of their own ability to independently make money and run. What we're seeing is very significant business for themselves. And then what we see is the, the fundamental shift, that sort of guiding wind here is really the overwhelming rise of at-home fitness, which is clearly being proved out with Peloton. Although we ultimately believe this will be much, much greater than Peloton. (laughs) Yeah, I have one. It's there everywhere. And the broader theme, which we're also really excited about is the rise of passion economies and the power of of independent creators. So we see this as a extremely exciting slice of that opportunity. And we really saw this as a business that came out of him thinking through his own personal experience and seeing the opportunity. And he's really uniquely positioned to lead that business. So we're we're excited about it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And Cam was my introduction to Ali Corp, So very, very grateful to him as well. Both those examples on Zola, what I really appreciate about them is Zola has been around now for a long time and has done an unbelievable job and was also great just as a counterexample with Core being, you know, still quite earlier in their journey. So to see both, I think that's really, really interesting and very compelling. What's one thing you would change about venture capital or the fundraising process?
1: My one thing that I would change is that VC, it's so funny because in the world of venture, We invest in technology and we're all about innovation, right? That's how we started this conversation, but yet VC, and getting in front of an investor is still very much what it looked like 20, 30 years ago, right? It's someone connecting you, it's someone introducing you. It's almost, I think, sometimes a little bit too relationship driven. Because what that means is if you're a person that doesn't have those connections to the top BVC firms, you will never really be able to get in front of them, right? So I think that's a big reason why overall we've seen issues across the board in Venture when it comes to investing in diversified founders. You know, I'm an, an Asian American woman. I was born in the Bay Area. I live in New York. I am first generation and I am one of the very few dozen people who probably look like me as a partner in any fund here in the U.S. That's a problem. But what that means for me, though, is that I also have a diversified set of people that are part of my network. But until we see more leaders at the helm in VC who are diversified in background, and that could be race, that could be sexual orientation, that could be gender, that could be socioeconomic class, that could be you know the educational background. Until we see more of that, I am very nervous about the fact that the venture capital world as we know it is very much still entirely who do you know and a little bit too relationship driven i'd have to completely agree there and i think often investors
2: talk in very broad terms that leads us back into all the same channels You know, what's the future of mental health? What's the future of work? We're all reciting the same sets of words. And I think there's an opportunity to think more proactively and granularly about specific problems or subgroups, people who are underserved, call it more of a bottoms up approach across the industry, which I think leads to more creative thinking. It leads to bringing in diversity. It leads to thinking outside the box. And so, you know, a lot of times I really wish, you know, it'd be great to talk about what we're actually talking about. Out here and that you know jargons a part of that and looking for smaller opportunities looking for outsiders that is really the big opportunity I see and and that makes me very excited to be at Alley Corp because on the incubation side that's what we do and on the investing side I think there's a big opportunity for the industry to think a little bit more that way.
1: And for us at Alley Corp, we as a fund, at least since 2007, we have almost an equal split when it comes to gender parity. That's incredible. You know, for us, at least gender parity has not been afterthought. It's been just part of our DNA. You look at Gil, you look at Zola, these are incredible female founders at the home. So as I think about the fact that an issue VC is so relationship driven, I'll tell you this, to all the founders that are out there, cold email. There's, I am a big believer in the power of a very good cold email. If you write an authentically good cold email, you will get in front of anyone, but it has to come from a place that's authentic, that's genuine, that's shown that you've done your research. I look at every cold email I get sent my way, and if it's a thoughtful note, I will respond. And in the same way in how we incubate, you know, pain points that I experience are my own pain points. Susanna's pain points that she experienced are her own. But a lot of what we do at Alley Corp is actually sending also ourselves a ton of cold emails, a ton, and making sure that we are diversified in who we reach out to so that we can surface pain points that are beyond just the four walls of who we are as Alley Corp. So cold email, cold email, cold email. The power of a cold email can go so far.
0: I completely agree. I mean, especially since I started this podcast based off of just cold emails that I did to (laughs) investors. So I absolutely agree with you on the power of cold emails. It also reminds me too too, especially what you said, Wendy, and also both us, Susanna about, you know, diversity and inclusive. It just reminds me of this conversation I had with Connie Macabella at Kindred Ventures. And he was saying how, if you think about it, if venture capital is the riskiest asset class right? Where you actually, and it's all about performing outside returns and the outliers is what, you know, finances your fund. And then you should actually be looking in terms of to actually invest in diverse teams, to invest in diversity rather than people that all look the exact same. So, or, or or maybe even come from the same schools or, or what have you. So totally, totally agree with you both there. What's one book that inspired each of you personally, and one book that inspired each of you professionally?
1: Yeah. So, I'm right now actually reading Talking to Strangers by Malcolm Gladwell. And that actually recommended through a podcast that I listen to called Armchair Expert. It's actually Dax Shepard, the the SNL Actors podcast that I love listening to because he is able to apply a very humorous way to interviewing some very fascinating speakers. And the book itself, it talks a lot about how we judge people and how we are sometimes too trusting of our point of view an individual. And I find this book to be both personally and professionally incredibly refreshing because in what we do in venture, our job is to judge people. Our job is to judge people our job is to judge the idea. And you can imagine a world like venture, you can very easily get swayed by how someone, by your first encounter. And this book, the reason why I found it helpful to me personally and professionally is because it reminds me of how important it is to check for our own biases and how important it is to check for our own perceptions of people that we might not even think that we hold. And this book, I would recommend to anyone who is thinking about launching their own company, building their own team, because perception is what happens when you interview someone. When you interview someone, you are applying your subjective point of view inherent or, or maybe non-inherent to that individual. This is also a big reason why at Alley Court, references are the most important thing. Because references, an interview is a reflection on that person in a static point in time. A reference is a point of view on that person throughout their life or throughout that period of time. That's why references are so important and also referencing people who are not just the references that that candidate is referring you to. Back channel, the word back channel. It's important for everyone to be back channeling.
2: Mine is on the professional side and personal actually really is difficult conversations. And it's helped me grow immensely in terms of approaching hard topics and, and talking around them. And Wendy has also been an incredible teacher here in learning the difference between being liked and being respected. And being respected and moreover, Valuable to founders and other investors and and people we work with means having honest and, and hard conversations and giving very candid feedback. And so, you know, what Wendy always says is that the truth is the most powerful and liberating thing in life, but but very much in, in terms of what we do at Ali Corp and in venture in investing in incubation. And it's very important that we're always extremely direct with our founders and that they feel they can be extremely direct with us. We aren't very helpful to each other if we aren't. And so you know, Wendy's really taught me that there is just this this really big difference and that respect is Inextricably tied with the truth. So I try to think about that every day when working across our ecosystem. How can I be direct? How can I receive feedback in the
1: most constructive way from the people I'm working with and hopefully bring the most value? I love that you mentioned that, Santa, because as a founder, as a CEO, people need to realize that when you're a CEO, you're probably in the most scary position. People who are working under you are probably going to be scared to bring things up to you. But as a CEO, how you receive feedback and how you receive bad, seemingly bad news is so important because that shows other people and sets a tone for how does one receive feedback, right? As a CEO, your job is to know everything, the good and the bad. So the only way to do that is to act in a way where you can receive bad news and not scare away your direct reports. I love that you mentioned that, Susanna.
0: Yeah, I love that too, because we also on this show, we talk a bit about how important it is for founders when seeking pitcher capital investment to also talk to the VC fund that might be interested, their portfolio companies, and especially the portfolio companies or investments that they made that ended up not making it, right? Which, you know, every fund has those and seeing how the actual fund behaved when things went wrong, right? If they were still very like supportive of the company.
1: Yeah, and that's Fred Wilson's quote right there. Right, which is the best way to back-channel investors is not to talk to the funds or the companies that the investor recommends. It's to figure out the ones that actually were kind of in the middle, or maybe had to shut down and asking them, how do investors help them? You know, we've had to wind down one or two companies, certainly. And one thing that I feel very confident in is that we take care of our people here at Alley Court. have dabbled in around a concept in the end of life space, realizing that back then, end of life, whatever this concept was, was just a bit too premature for the market. Hence, we haven't really seen any end of life companies to date. But the operator there, you know, I've served as for reference, at least now, you know, two times, uh, at the companies that she's gotten to join. And she's now, you know, an incredible executive at a hyper, hyper, hyper growth company here in New York. And I feel so privileged to have her as part of my network. And she's part of our Alicor brain trust now, even though the ultimate outcome of our last company is that we had to wind it down, but you know, I'm there for her and she's there for me. And that's what we do, especially when operators are really excellent and honest and have a lot of integrity and work hard.
0: Love that. Love that. That's really great. So what's the best piece of advice you've each received?
1: Hmm. Okay, so I have a couple. But I'll be quick, quick about them. If you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, you got to go together. And that was that's from a poor vet instructor at CEO. At least that's who I heard it from. Another one that I believe in a lot. And so that first one speaks a lot around as a leader and as a CEO, build your team. You need to go together with your organization. Another one by Meg Whitman that speaks around integrity is always choose the hard right versus the easy wrong. As a CEO and founder, there's many times where it's easier just to ignore something, but. When your instinct is there, you have to trust it. And it might produce a more difficult outcome or a difficult situation to go through and navigate, but you have to lean into that. You have to trust your instinct. If you feel as if one of your operators is not performing, lean into it and solve it then and there rather than trying to... Sort of just bypass time, hoping it'll blow over. And my last one that I'll say, and it's from Kevin Ryan, is simplify. Simplify everything that you're doing. It's Especially in building a product, it's so easy to overscope the work that has to get done. Simplify the business and make sure that whatever you're creating is solving for the the pain point in the there now. So my first one is
2: actually sort of tied to what I talked about before, which is when you're building a team, it's become so abundantly clear. And and Kevin and Wendy say this so often, but that your team is the most important thing. The people you're building with, the people who jump on the journey with you, the people who believe in your idea and have ideas how to execute it. If there's one thing that is determinative of success, it's that. And so when I am working with our team at Alley Corp or working with founders, that's what I really try to remember every single day is that at the center of every product of every company, everything we're doing it's the team and the people and not just their work lives, but their whole lives that matter the most. So that's, that's really what I would say. And then I think, you know, what I mentioned before around really centering yourself around the truth, you know, Wendy always shares this quote, you know, at the center of your being, you have the answer, you know, who you are and what you want. And I love that. And, you know, really staying true to yourself and speaking the truth to your founders, to other investors and receiving their truth as well think will get you really just the
1: farthest.
0: I love that. I love both your responses. This is amazing. So my final question for you both, what's one piece of advice that you have for founders today?
1: Yeah. And this is a quote that we share actually with all of our CEOs, which is, and this is one that I I learned from Kevin, your job as a CEO is to make yourself irrelevant. And the way you do that is because you've hired a phenomenal team. Your job as a CEO is again, to make yourself irrelevant. It's counterintuitive because you think that in a normal role, you want to show why your role is so important, why you're the best fit. As a CEO, you're in a very unique position where your job actually is to hire an incredible team, and your job is to make sure that your team has more functional expertise than you do as a CEO, because that's your job as a CEO. Your job is to hire a great team. It's to make sure that the vision and the north stars are set in a clear way, and it's to ultimately fundraise to share that that story with the public and with investors. But the number one thing is you got to hire a phenomenal team. The phenomenal team will ultimately build a great product. So to all those CEOs that are listening out there, find a way to make your irrelevant. Because by being irrelevant, you know that you're actually doing a good job because you've hired the right people. Or God forbid you get hit by a bus, the company you know will just thrive. That is your job as a CEO.
2: Completely agree. No, That, w- that would be mine too. And I guess I'll just add that when founders are looking for investors, I think they should look for the same qualities that they look for in teammates. Because ultimately, investors are long haul teammates. They may be on a founder's team longer than some employees at a company, you know, they're there for years and years and years. And so thinking about how to build those relationships and picking investors who you think will really be there for you, not just during the good times, but as Wendy said, during the tough times, when it really matters and investors who are excited and aligned and have something to contribute. That's, I think, a really, just always a really exciting opportunity for founders as well.
0: Awesome. Awesome. That's really, really great. Well, Wendy and Susanna, thank you so much for both of your time. This has been so much fun.
1: Oh, thank you so much. We are big fans of your, of your podcast and you know many of our founders listen to it. And so we're just excited to be, to be part of this with you. Uh, thanks so much, Mike.
0: And there you have it. It was so much fun having both Wendy and Susanna on the show. You can follow each of them on Twitter at Wendy Stsu and at Susanna Shipton. Both are located in the show notes. You're also welcome to follow me on Twitter at Mike Gelb. For all episodes, please visit theconsumervc.com. Thanks again for listening, folks.